Okay, so now we want to pick up where we left off. It's been quite a few weeks ago now since we had our Sunday afternoon study on a topic that I initiated at the time called The Future of Israel Reconsidered. And I said then, and I say again to make sure that everyone is very clear, I am basing these presentations on the excellent work uh, by scholar and theologian Dr. James B. Jordan on this particular subject. He wrote an essay on this some years ago, which I am again using as the base for this study, and in some places just dealing outright with his material, and then adding some of my own insights. Um, and you can have access to what he wrote about it and see where you know we may differ on a few things. Um, that essay and that article are available online. But <clears throat> this is the second part of a multi-part installment. I'm not in a hurry to rush through this because it's a very complex issue and it's a, it, a, it is a tremendously important one. And the genesis of this, the beginning of this whole uh, study, goes to Romans chapter 11. Now this has been a chapter well known and well regarded and commented on by scholars and theologians for many, many, many centuries, where Paul, seeming to indicate that at some future point, that there is still some sort of program or regard or somehow something to do with the Jews, and they're being brought in or grafted back in, as some of the language that he uses, into the kingdom of God. Uh, because at the time of the formation of the church of Jesus Christ, they had been rejected. And Paul in Romans 11 seems to be saying that there are a remnant who will be at some future point, again, and this is the crucial thing, um, the future point, they will be brought in, the elect among them. And there have been various discussions over the years among Reformed scholars, most notably Professor John Murray of my alma mater, Westminster Theological Seminary, and his commentary on Romans. He gives sort of the standard Westminster Confession view that um, there, there is this future bringing in or ingathering of the Jews uh, at some future point, and many people relate that to near or about the time of the final advent of Christ. So uh, the last time we were together, I covered some material about this subject, and I pointed out that what Dr. Jordan discusses in his article, and what I think I find very helpful and what I'm sharing with you, is that from the preterist standpoint, from the perspective that many of us in this church hold, um, our previous uh, pastor and friend, uh, theologian and scholar, Dr. Kenneth Gentry, uh, and his writings concerning uh, the, the timing of various events in the New Testament has been one of the most effective advocates of the biblical view of partial preterism, which is also my view. Now, he and I disagree on this point, and he's the one that actually suggested to me this article by James Jordan. So I want to be clear, even though Dr. Gentry has had a tremendous impact on, I think, just about all of our thinking here in this church since he was pastor here for many years, um, but also that there are some differences. So um, with that, let's just very quickly review, since it's been quite a few weeks now, we talked about this issue of the preterist interpretation, how the events from the time of the uh, beginning of Jesus' public ministry in AD 30 to the time of... Uh, his murder, his resurrection, his ascension, 
and then to the crucial point in AD 70 of the absolute destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem by the Romans, the, tr- the very central importance of that defining moment in terms of redemptive history. Uh, too, too many Christians, I get, especially because of the futurist view that, some, that many hold, they just blow right by that. I mean, they may acknowledge a few verses in Matthew 24 refer to a future destruction of the temple, but depending on the level of misunderstanding of those ideas, some uh, are willing to say, yeah, well, that's probably what happened in AD 70. Some know that refers to a future rebuilt temple. They just go all over the place with it. The texts of Scripture are very, very clear for anyone who will be honest with what Scripture is saying. Uh, the destruction of the temple was something that Jesus predicted and decreed, actually, and it's recorded in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and I, I think the entire book of Revelation relates to that topic myself. So, <clears throat> if we can have an agreement that Matthew 24 and 25, uh, these texts that talk about things being near and at hand, are uh, referring to the times of Jesus' own generation. Let me give you another text. We didn't cover this last time, but in Matthew 10:23 is one of these very intriguing statements that Jesus makes. He says, speaking to his apostles, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. That's one of those texts that, you know, you've got to deal with it. And you've got to either say that he was absolutely correct in what he said, or you've got to say he was totally wrong in what he said. And that's that's an example of... um, the false claim of the historic Christian church that Jesus was God in human flesh and therefore without error and perfect in all ways. He obviously was mistaken here according to the the view that denies the deity of Christ. But then you've got the other views that are so common among evangelical churches where they have to take the clear words of Scripture and in a fit of hermeneutical yoga turn them around and twist them around into things that they clearly don't say. I mean, friends, it is patently obvious here that in Matthew 10, 23, he's talking to, who is the you? Let me put it in the form of a question. When he says, when they persecute you. And this has nothing to do with any double future fulfillment or anything like that. We're dealing with the text on the ground where he says to them, when they persecute you, apostles, Peter, James, John, when they persecute you in one town and those who come after you as your disciples, you go to the next. And he says, you will not have gone, you will not have gone through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So whatever this is he's talking about, it's going to happen before he comes. And the coming of Jesus in that generation, we know, is related to his coming, figuratively speaking, in judgment against the city, against the Jews, and the temple at Jerusalem. And then he also told them, and the same people, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, a direct reference to what would be the day of Pentecost, and you will be my witnesses, now notice, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the land. Now, the, the Greek word there, geis, is translated earth, but I don't think what's in view here is the whole uh, earth. I think it refers, and the, the alternate translation is the land. It means you will not have gone through the land of Palestine, the land of the Roman Empire, the land that you are familiar with uh, before these things happen. So there is then a 
a bent toward the preteristic interpretation and understanding that these are grounded and located in the contemporary setting in which Jesus spoke those words. They're not projected off a thousand years, two thousand years in the future. That just doesn't work. It doesn't fit the text, and it's a violation of what Scripture teaches. So, uh, we talked about that, and so how that, therefore, these passages or verses of Paul in Romans 11, uh, at least we should seriously consider that this, too, is to be understood as relating to the events leading up to A.D. 70, and that, in some sense, what he's referring to there about this ingathering of a remnant of the Jews would take place leading up to that event. I mean, it's pretty clear from what I just read you in Acts 1 that the apostles had a quote-unquote worldwide commission to go into all these places. So it's, it, it is a mass proclamation of the message to the lost sheep of the house of Israel in that generation and in that time frame, and the solemn declaration that this mission of theirs would not have been completed until they've gone through all the cities and then the judgment comes upon Jerusalem. So <clears throat> there is then that very strong basis of why we might well consider that what Paul is talking about in Romans 11 has nothing to do with the future final advent of Christ at some far distant time. But like everything else that we've read relating to this issue of AD 70 and the destruction of the temple, it is in that contemporary time frame. And let me be clear again, as I mentioned last time, let me say it at this point, we're not talking about the heretical false teaching of full or hyper-preterism. There is a future return and final advent of Christ. Now, we can disagree about the events leading up to that, and we did talk about that a little bit last time. Um, but at any rate, the, the thing that we want to nail down here is, what is the time frame of the things that Paul is writing in Romans 11? Um, John, uh, excuse me, James Jordan points out that uh, the coming of Christ to pass judgment on the old covenant nation of Israel and the old, spiritually speaking, creation in A.D. 70. That is typologically or typologically related to then his future coming to judge the new creation, which will be at the end at his final advent. And so, um, the view that most New Testament prophecy, not all, has been fulfilled in A.D. 70 does not make it irrelevant for us today. It has lots of relevance. But now, I want to quickly move on to the next part of this topic. And again, I, I tell you that I'm not in any hurry to try to finish this up in two or three installments. I'm not going to finish what, what I have today. Um, we'll, we'll knock it off into the next Sunday, our third Sunday, uh, where we you know meet right after we have worship service. So the next question that Jordan raises and that we want to deal with is, who were the Jews? So we've got who were the Jews, and then what about today, the people who claim to be Jews? Well, um, most Christians think of the Jews as a race of people who are descended from Abraham. But as Jordan points out, there are some serious problems with that kind of thinking, and we can see why by simply looking at what Scripture teaches about the history of the Old Covenant nation of Israel. So when God called Abraham, he commanded him to use the sign of circumcision to mark out the people, the Hebrews, from the other nations. If you'll look with me at Genesis 14, verse 4, Genesis 14, verse 4, and for those of you who are listening by means of audio, you can pause this if you need to to turn to it. I'm going to go right ahead with it. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, 
he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now that's important because Abraham's household at that time included at least 318 fighting men. And there were, of course, their wives and their children, possibly even more servants or slaves. And all of those men were circumcised. Now, we read in Genesis 26 and also chapter 32 of the many servants. And when Jacob went down to sojourn in Egypt, so many people went with him that he had to be given the whole land of Goshen by the Pharaoh to dwell in. So Genesis 46 provides us a list of only 70 now get that, only 70 actual blood descendants of Abraham who went into Egypt. So then, from the very beginning, the Israelites were defined by covenant, not by blood or race. Now, I'm not saying that factor was not there, but we need to be very clear about the defining aspect. The same is true for each of the tribes who were within Israel. A Levite was not only necessarily a blood descendant of Levi, but more likely, over time, a descendant of one of the patriarch's servants who were part of Levi's company. Jordan makes this very point. Only a small percentage of, of the Levites would actually have been blood descendants of Levi. Um, these several thousands of people who um, would later become two million people by the time of the Exodus, 250 years after they went into Egypt. Uh, only a small percentage of the people who came out of Egypt had any ethnic, genetic, racial connection to that man Abraham. And then, in addition, there were added to the company of the Israelites at that time a vast mixed multitude of people. Uh, many of the men uh, became circumcised members of the nation of Israel, and so um, so did members of, their, of the various other tribes as well. So there was another admixture then of converts in the time of David and Solomon. Uh, a, a typical example of that is Uriah the Hittite. And the book of Esther tells us that during and after the exile, uh, many more Gentiles became members of the Israelite family. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Esther, chapter 8, verse 17. Esther eight seventeen. Now, I'm going to read this from the Christian Standard Bible. We typically use the ESV, of course, but I like to occasionally... Uh, quote from other translations, as I'm going to do right now. Uh, Esther 8.17, In every province and every city, wherever the king's command and his law reached, joy and rejoicing took place among the Jews. There was a celebration and a holiday. And many of the ethnic groups of the land professed themselves to be Jews because fear of the Jews had overcome them. And what that means is that very few Jews at the time of Christ Jesus had any of Abraham's blood. Now, to be sure, Jesus himself was a true blood descendant of Abraham. And his genetic record, his genealogy is important, of course, for theological reasons, but few other Jews of that time could actually trace their genetic code or their genealogy to Abraham. And so, with the passing away of the older covenant, there is no longer there, now, listen carefully. There is no longer any such thing as a Jew in the biblical sense, unless by true Jew, or we could put it that way, a true Jew, we mean Christians. 
th- there is no covenant, and therefore there is no nation and no race of people who are the Jews. There were, but that ceased to exist with the dawning of the new covenant. Now, I've been hinting at this point in our study in the Gospel of John, and I pointed out to you in our study um, two weeks ago how when Jesus was encouraged to go up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, um, you know, it was it pointed out that the Jews were planning to kill him. And uh, I, I mentioned then that we have something of a dilemma here about how we understand that word. Now, leading up to that point, what I've said up to this point concerning who were the Jews was reasonably accurate. You had very few, but some who were blood descendants and had what we might call with parenthesis or quotation marks, Jewish blood, but far many more others were Jewish by covenant. But the point is you had a distinct group of people who were known as Jews. Now, before I go any further with that and talk about the issue of who are the Jews, we're talking about who were the Jews, um, in the Gospel of John, which we've been studying, in John chapter 4, we have the famous account of Jesus encountering the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And I'm just going to read a few verses uh, of this. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have nothing to do, uh, no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So, up to that point, we do have this definable group of people, but that begins to change. And as I indicated, this is something going on in the Gospel of John. And by the time we get to the point of Jesus' public ministry, and especially at the point of the crucifixion, we have had a total change in the meaning of that word. Because Jews up to that point were the people who were to receive the message of the kingdom and believe it and follow Jesus as the true king of Israel. But having rejected it, and let's remember what we were told at the very beginning of John's gospel, John 1, 11 to 14, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So these who are coming into the kingdom are not born of blood. In other words, there's no longer a bloodline connection with this. They're not born of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And you see, that signals a seismic shift in God's plan and God's program. So up to this point, to to lay it out as simply and clearly as I can, uh, the Jews, as we continue to read in the Gospel of John, are those who reject Jesus. And uh, let me just give you one last passage before we conclude this study. Um, You may want to turn to this. I'm reading from John chapter 8, verses 38 to 45. I'm reading from the ESV. Jesus says to the Jews, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Notice what they say to him in John 8, 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. So here's a direct ethnic reference. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. 
So right away, he's questioned this. He's pointed out, you're not really Abraham's children. He says, but now, verse 40, you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father did. And they said, we, have, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Now, I've told you on previous occasions, that's uh, their snarky, sneaky way of implying that Jesus was a bastard born illegitimately. That was the rumor the Jews began to spread. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, this is 8.42, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and you, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. So <clears throat> something has happened here. These people who have come to that point called themselves Jews and pretended to be, and up to that point were, the Old Covenant nation, even though they had fallen and there had been many false teachings invading the pure teachings of Holy Scripture. Nevertheless, with the coming of Christ, that which was called a Jew has been superseded. It's been set aside or has now better, I like better, morphed into what God had planned from the beginning, a new Israel, a new, quote, Jew, if you will. But we don't use that term because it becomes too confusing because there are people today who call themselves Jews, and that's what we're going to talk about next time. But I just want to wrap up with two other passages uh, concerning the identity of these people who are now defining themselves or Jesus has clearly defined them as not people who are descendants of Abraham, either covenantally or by blood. It's a, more, a far more damning indictment. They're of their father, the devil. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He, uh, this is one of the letters, uh, seven letters to the churches of Asia. And it says to the church of the angel, the messenger of Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And, and notice, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. And then in the next chapter, he says the same thing, or something almost identical to it. Um, to the angel of the church, the messenger of the church in Philadelphia, this is Revelation 3, 7 to 9, he says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So these verses clearly indicate <clears throat> that whatever the term Jew may have referred to in the past, and it did have a definite meaning, uh, that has been done away with. Uh, the coming of Christ has been um, a, a line in the sand, if you will, a demarcation point, the, the, the disembarking of something totally different or something developing out of that which was old. And so <clears throat> we have following the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, a totally new and different category of God's people. It has replaced, I'll use that term, I don't mind, it has replaced the old covenant, 
I don't mind because this is what Scripture clearly teaches. I don't know. You know, you have to do, again, like a lot of hermeneutical yoga to completely distort the Scripture to avoid what is being said by the words of Holy Scripture. Now, the people of God are not called Israelites. They're called Christians. The elect of God, and there may be some among the people who call themselves Jew today, Jews today, who do have a future in the life of the church, as do untold other millions of people. But that future is based on them accepting Christ as Lord and King and Messiah, uh, the divine Son of God, and thereby, by faith, becoming a part of his kingdom. So we have these people who call themselves in the past and were Jews. That has been completely set aside because of the world historical, everything changes now event of the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. But now we're left with this one interesting point. What about the people who today call themselves the Jews? I mean, we talked about who the Jews were, but we've got this issue of these people still today, many, many millions of them who call themselves Jews. And we have this whole situation, as I mentioned last week, and it's an ongoing thing since 1948 when the modern state of Israel was formed, where we got hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people who live in the nation of Israel today who call themselves Jews. What about them? What, what, what does any of this have to do with the people today who still use that term? I mean, we can agree that what Scripture teaches concerning uh, the coming of Christ, uh, the, the, the significance of AD 70, and the preteristic interpretation of, all, of, of Paul's words in Romans 11, well, what about then those people today? I'm going to end it here to see if you have any questions or comments, and next time we will take up this issue then of what are or who are modern Jews. So let me just see if you have any questions.